This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Traditional economics measures the ways in which we spend our income, but doesn't attribute worth to the crucial human interactions that give our lives meaning. Claire Brown, an economics professor at UC Berkeley and a practicing Buddhist, has developed a holistic model, one based on the notion that quality of life should be measured by more than national income. She's written a book entitled Buddhist Economics, An Enlightened Approach to the Dismal Science. A note about uh, Claire Brown, again, she is a professor of economics and director of the Center for Work, Technology, and Society at the University of California, Berkeley. An economist focusing on work and economic justice, she is a past director of the Institute of Industrial Relations at Berkeley and chair of the Committee on Education Policy of the UCB Academic Senate. She lives in Richmond, California, and she is with us today. Welcome, Dr. Brown. Thank you. It's so nice to join you. Sure. Um, I, I mentioned that uh, this is one of two books when we, we spoke uh, uh, before the program, one of two books uh, on economics that I've read and understood at least some of it. And I, so I, I can assure uh, listeners that uh, if if eco- economics is not your bailiwick, this is uh, this is an excellent introduction. I think it is really written well for uh, for laymen. Uh, but I'm curious about the title, uh, an enlightened approach, the subtitle rather, an enlightened approach to the dismal science. Why is it the dismal science? Well, economists have never been the most popular people because every time someone comes up with the way to enjoy life or to try and do things in a better way, economists keep saying, well, yes, yes, that's a benefit, but what about the cost? So we're always reminding people, what about the cost? And then from a macro viewpoint, just as the economy is doing really well and taking off and people are finally getting jobs and wages might be rising, all of a sudden economists come in and say, oh, I'm sorry, we're going to take away the punch bowl now because we don't want inflation. Um, And that, that also makes economists be practicing a dismal science. So... We, we are, as I said, we're not the most popular people around, but we can also think about economics in a broader, more holistic way, because the dismal science really doesn't think about sort of the human spirit or how to create a meaningful life. It, it, it reminds me of so many people in various professions that say, oh my gosh, I, I remember when I started out in my career, it was, I was passionate about it. It was rewarding. I loved it. And then the bean counters took over. Uh, these people who have no experience in the industry itself, uh, but they do have an experience, they have excellent experience in accounting. And really, their, their main focus is the bottom line. 
uh, you, you can see a shared understanding there, right? Eh? Yes, yes, that's a really, really good example and a, a really nice way to think about, oh, if we're just going to focus on national income, or as economists like to think about it, we really want to minimize cost. Let's be efficient. There's this huge focus on efficiency with the size of the pie or minimizing cost or maximizing profits being the goal. But when you step back and say, gee, is the economy producing well-being, and giving people a high quality of life, then that's not going to be answered by the bean counters. You know, it's interesting that you're talking about religion and, uh, and economics, uh, or philosophy and economics, because I've always understood them to, to have a very similar, uh, a, a common thread, if you will. And that is that religion and economics are an awful lot about belief and ideology. And once you hang your hat on a religion or hang your hat on an ideology, you're going to stick with it through thick and thin, even when uh, counter-evidence is staring you right in the face, because you're both in position, someone who belongs to a religion, particularly those religions that require a significant amount of expression of faith, you, you are anticipating an outcome, and you can't prove that outcome. Economists do the same thing, right? You belong to this particular school of economics, and you are at war with this other school of economics, and you have the same data, but you have different outcomes. Is, has that been frustrating for you in the field of economics? I think it's extremely frustrating, um, especially even when we're teaching. The simplest model in economics is the free market or competitive model. And we teach it because it's so simple and it has assumptions that we don't observe in the real world, but hey, it's easy to teach. And also, if it, if all the assumptions were fulfilled of competition and everybody having opportunity to do whatever they want to do, then it's a very fair model. But the only problem is the model if you go out and look in the real world, free markets don't really exist, and, and the economy, without a lot of sort of structuring by the government and help by the government, ends up causing enormous inequality and enormous damage to the environment. And so you're right. We have this ideology where you still hear, especially politicians, saying, oh, no, no, the market will take care of everything. We must leave it alone. But we also have all the economists showing us studies that that's not true, that we, we, de- we need to deal with inequality, we need to deal with environmental degradation, and we can. We know how to do it. And, but once again, you end up with your ideology. Right, and, and certainly the same could be true for someone in a communist state, right? That, that no, matter, no matter what the data says, they would say, no, this is, this is the, the system that will get us to where we want to be, correct? That's uh, well put, yes, yes. Uh, so, and it is interesting as well that uh, many people, uh, they, they almost commit idolatry with this free, with this invisible hand, <laughs> I would say, right? 
<laughs> that that no, no matter what, this magic hand is going to take care of everything. Were you ever uh, a part of that philosophy? No, but I was certainly trained that way. And, and you know, but I'm an institutional economist, which means that we understand that all markets are structured by both the government and by social norm and custom. And that markets are, are no, you know, they just don't magically appear, but they're structured by the society to make the economy work. And that each society picks their own level of inequality and picks their own environmental degradation. And those are social choices. And you can look around the world and see all kinds of different outcomes based upon the policies that the government has in the social culture. And, and political scientists call this varieties of capitalism. Um, but you can see all these different outcomes. And so economists can tell us, hey, you want this, this outcome for inequality or equity? These are your policies. You want something else? These are your other policies. So economists have lots of policies to offer. The, the problem is often they're ignored. And you say that these policies that are given have, have a degree of substance to them, that, that we can learn from them. Is that right? Yes, and we, and we have learned from them because the nice thing when there's so many different types of policies in various countries then we can make the comparisons and start to learn, oh, in this country, when we had this policy, we got this outcome. And, and we do this comparative analysis that's, that's really quite helpful. And uh, right now we see in the U.S. we're going from a focus on trying to reduce environmental degradation and quit putting so much carbon in the air under the Obama administration to the Trump administration where we're saying, oh, full steam ahead with fossil fuel. We don't need to worry. It can give us all the economic growth we want, and we don't need to worry about carbon emissions. So we're, we're really changing our policies, and we're going to see very different outcomes. You, um, this book, we're talking about Buddhist economics. Obviously, we're talking about, um, we're talking about an economic model that is based on what are often referred to as dharmic principles or principles of the buddha and and perhaps other great masters as well would you say that if you that there could be books out there on christian economics and jewish economics that mirror what you're saying uh simply because they are attempting to to come up with a model that is the best for the most people? Oh, I think absolutely. Um, and in my book, I mentioned that you go across all the major religions, and they all have some form of the golden rule about treating people as you would treat others. Where I, and, of course, they all talk about relieving suffering and sharing the good life across the world. Where, where Buddhism is slightly different is that there's no God. There's only the inner Buddha in each of us. And so from that you get the premise and the assumption that we're all interconnected. Everyone's interconnected. And then also that we're interconnected with nature. And so in Buddhist economics, it's based upon this idea of interconnectedness 
and therefore you, the suffering of one person is the suffering of all. So think about it this way. Think about the visualization that we call Indra's net, which I think is a great visualization for, for Buddhists, and actually Hindus also. That each jewel, think of it, this infinite net, and in each, um, each corner of it, each time the strings meet in the net, there's a jewel. And the jewel reflects all the other jewels. And so within any jewel, and each jewel is very beautiful, you see the reflection of the entire net. And that relates to the interconnectedness of people and of nature. And once you do that, then any time something happens to one jewel, it's reflected in all the jewels. That make, Yeah, sure. That makes uh, a great deal of sense you're, because you're talking about making sure that there is equity amongst all who would be affected by whatever economic policy you're you're attempting to implement, correct? That's right. And you especially don't want to cause suffering. You want to you want to relieve suffering. So that there's not just a focus on oh, what's happening on the average, but we care enormously about the distribution of what's happening across all people especially those at the bottom. It is interesting, too, that in our society, and this has been going on for decades, is that the idea of a free market, as we've been talking about it so far, has people who are in charge, so to speak, not necessarily economists themselves, but I would say the captains of industry and politicians have attempted to relate it to religion, specifically Christianity, that that a good Christian is a free marketeer, and that anything that would, would upset that balance is uh, suspect at best. You know, I, I think the person that I really follow in this area is Pope Francis because he's made it very, very clear that the free market isn't helping a lot of people and that it's the Christian duty to care about everyone. And then in his proclamation, Laudato Si, which was his love letter to Earth, as it were, he makes it really clear. He says, hey, look, well, he's a climate scientist, and he understands chemistry. But he says to everyone, you know what, when you put carbon in the air, from driving your car, heating your home, from everything you do, every time you put carbon in the air, you're actually harming life and harming people, and that's not okay. That's actually a sin. And so he was very clear that we we have to care for everyone around the world and, and their lives, but we also also have to care about nature and what we're doing to nature. And so I think he probably gives the best argument of of all the Christian leaders sort of against what happens if you just let the free market take over. He was he would be the exception to the rule of the example that I was giving because I've just heard for decades that that and the people don't come right out and say it uh, that that you know Jesus was a free marketeer. They don't they don't say that, but you know there is a very strong conservative Christian establishment in this country that that uh, promotes free markets. Uh, have you heard of the Acton Institute? 
Yes, but I don't really stay in touch with it. Okay. They're, they're headquartered here in Grand Rapids, by the way. Oh, okay. No, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I can almost see their building from where I sit if I had a window. Uh, so, oh, I do want to mention, by the way, that if people are just tuning in, this is WGVU. The program is Common Threads, and my name is Fred Stella, and I'm speaking with Dr. Claire Brown on her book, Buddhist Economics, An Enlightened Approach to the Dismal Science. Uh, so earlier we were talking about the, the idea that these theories can exist in some sort of alternative universe. Uh, uh, for instance, the idea that, that uh, markets are uh, best run without any government interference whatsoever, any regulation, uh, and but we can't find the solid proof that this in fact works. It's a theory. What about the model that you propose, this this Buddhist, this Dharmic economic plan that, that would, in, in your eyes, be wonderful if it was instituted here in this country? Can you look to any other societies, past or present, where the ideas of a Dharmic understanding of economics have allowed the country or the society to flourish? Well, well, certainly we can look to the social democracies in Europe that have done much better at reducing inequality. And then, once again, we can look to European countries, especially now France and Germany, that are really pushing forward to going to a green economy to make life, to make the economy sustainable and to improve human health and life. So we have those two. And then that leaves us with sort of the third aspect, which is reducing suffering or um, trying to have shared prosperity. And for that, we go to the United Nations, where with their Millennium Development Goals and then their Sustainable Development Goals, there has been any, with, with focused resources to reduce extreme poverty and extreme hunger, and also improve education and improve the human rights for women and children. They have done amazing things. Um, so it just shows that if we want to put our resources and our goals and work together globally, we, we can, in fact, reduce inequality. We can make the economy and the world more sustainable, and we can reduce suffering, especially related to extreme poverty, extreme hunger, and human rights and and education. It's it's so, interesting. Oh, so go we ahead. can we can find these ways of putting them all together. And in the litany of the the countries you've just mentioned, you didn't indicate any Buddhist majority nation, past or present. So, I'm just curious if if you can tell me why. Well, mainly because well, let's just take Bhutan. It's such a small country. Um. And one could say they, you know, they, they practice Buddhist economics. One could even go to Sri Lanka, which had a horrible civil war and, and now is trying very hard to uh, transition to a Buddhist economy. They invited me there to actually help them talk about what would they do, how would they do it. You can go to other countries, though, um, Thailand, Cambodia. So you find, let me tell you, here's one of the biggest problems, and I think it, it points out to everything you've, you've said so far that it's hard to integrate 
sort of what the monastics want to say or what the spiritual leaders say into some form of everyday life and how the economy and society function. And that's always been one of, I think, our biggest challenges, is how to integrate the spiritual life into the materialistic life and make it work. And that's one of the reasons I wrote this book, is I think it's possible, especially now that we are, we, all our countries are so rich, um, and in the rich countries, we can quit focusing on minimizing costs and, and the size of the pie and focus much more about what's in the pie, what, what's in our lives, and also how to share it. So one of the other problems is that in the Asian countries, they're much poorer, they're much further behind us. And so it's much harder for them to think about, oh, well, now we have, now we always have so much. Let's focus on our spiritual and human nature. Yeah, and certainly there is the uh, the risk that they're going to replicate where we have been, right? To 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 to, yeah. to, to get as much as you can, uh, unfortunately, and and try to copy the Western model of what they think success is. I I, I see that happening. I talk to my friends uh, uh, in India people who are from India and they see this this revolution which they're really excited about because hey it it certainly it isn't living on the streets uh but at the same time many of them also agree that perhaps they're taking it a little bit too far when they're working something like you know 18 hours a day well i think for the developing world especially china and india because they're so large um that there're two issues one is basically how to raise the standard of living, because we need to. We need to increase consumption, especially for food, clean water, shelter, education, health care, creating community, family life. We, we need to do that in the developing world, but we can't do it based upon fossil fuel. And so we need to have them leapfrog to, to clean energy technology which we have, which they can do. So we don't want them to replicate a fossil fuel economy. And we also don't want them to replicate that um, the goal is for everybody to, to live like they're rich. I mean, they, they also struggle enormously with their inequality. And the, one of the problems with inequality is that when you have vast inequality, then you have everybody trying to replicate the lifestyle, the lavish lifestyle at the top. And even though they could be having comfortable, healthy, sustainable lives, they don't feel that well off because they make these invidious comparisons to those at the top. And so one of the reasons that we want to reduce inequality is that when you reduce inequality, it actually makes everyone feel better off because now in a relative sense they are better off. And their comparisons to others say, oh, look, we actually have a comfortable, secure life. We should feel good about it. Well said. Uh, I'm curious, have you visited Bhutan? You mentioned Bhutan just a few minutes ago. No, but I'm going to be going this fall. I look forward to going. Oh, I I, I would too. Unfortunately, the, the... the problem with Bhutan, people have been giving that an awful lot of attention in the last few years because of their uh, 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 
uh, gross domestic happiness. Is that how do they rephrase that? Right. The yes, gross yes. gross well, domestic yes. happiness. Yes, as opposed to gross domestic product. Um, but I, I can't think of Bhutan as lovely as it. I'm sure it is without also talking about how they displaced uh, about 100,000 Nepali refugees, which was terribly unfortunate that, uh, a couple of decades ago. Um, I, I work with Bhutanese refugees, and they loved Bhutan. They, they speak of it with such relish, such, uh, so many great memories. Uh, it, unfortunately, it only takes one despot to uh, rock the boat and make lives miserable for people. Um, but that said, I, I'm sure that for the people who are there, that from everything I've read and from everything these refugees have talked about, it's a, a pretty amazing place. I, I, would, I, I would imagine you're going to have a wonderful time there. Yeah, but I, I agree with you that any time one group of people harms the other group, it's, it goes against every religion but yet we keep doing it. Um, and we can see that, that the Buddhists in Miramar have done terrible things um, to the minority there. So it's not like, as you point out, you know, we can be ideological, and it's not like our spiritual life is going to make sure that we always behave correctly. Exactly. Uh, Claire, we are down to the wire for this uh, particular episode, but uh, this has uh, been a great conversation. I'd love to have you back next week if you can. Oh, I look forward to it. Do you have a website? Yes, it's called BuddhistEconomics.net. Okay, BuddhistEconomics.net. Well, thank you so much, Claire, for joining us today. Uh, my name is Fred Stella. You've been listening to Common Threads on WGVU-FM. And uh, Claire Brown has been our guest today. She is the author of Buddhist Economics, an Enlightened Approach to the Dismal Science. Please join us again next week for more conversation here on Common Threads. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with Dr. Claire Brown. She is the author of the book, Buddhist Economics, An Enlightened Approach to the Dismal Science. 
a bit on uh, Dr. Brown. She is a professor of economics and director of the Center for Work, Technology, and Society at the University of California, Berkeley. She's an economist focusing on work and economic justice and is the past director of the Institute for Industrial Relations at Berkeley and chair of the Committee on Education Policy of the UCB Academic Senate. And she lives in Richmond, California, and she's with us today once again here on Common Threads. Hello, Claire. Hello. It's great to be back to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, One thing I wanted to ask about your book before we uh, had to leave last, uh, last week, you write something that I don't think I've ever seen someone write in a book before. Um, you, you admit in the book that perhaps there is not enough rigor in your book for economists and not enough Buddhism for Buddhists. Uh, essentially, what, you're, what I think you're doing is you are acknowledging that you're going to be criticized for lacks in two areas because you you cover both Buddhism and economics and I'm curious why you don't think there is enough rigor in the book or maybe even why why didn't you include all that rigor that, that the other economists are going to be looking for That's a great question so let me let me say that one of the goals of this book is to integrate many different strands of economics that there's some wonderful economics out there about human behavior, about sustainability, about how to create a just society. But in economics, as in any discipline, you get to be very, very good on a very small question, and that's how you bring in rigor. But the problem is then there's nothing that's like pulling together all these different strands to say, okay, if we pull this together, here's how we can actually look at a more holistic economy. So if you if you think about it, we have all these experts on sort of the smaller issues and the smaller questions, both in economics and then, of course, in Buddhism, it goes the other way. They say, well sort of you you sort of had to summarize so many elements of Buddhism and plus you know we have all these different schools and I say yes yes but I wanted to take the major lessons that we could get from Buddhism that we could bring to daily life and then I want to take the major lessons from holistic economics around equality and and shared prosperity and sustainability and bring them together and so to do that it means you're covering a huge canvas of, and if you take any little piece of this canvas, you can find experts that know an enormous amount about it. But the problem is they don't—they aren't really aware of their integration into the rest of the canvas. So I was really trying to paint the big canvas so that we could all come together and think about how can we create a meaningful, a sustainable world. That's a great answer. I appreciate that. Uh, in in this system that that you propose, is it possible to be rich, and is it possible to be poor? Well, it's certainly possible to be rich if you are willing to share, and if you don't glom on to what you have, you won't you don't get overly attached to what we call outer wealth. Also. 
if you didn't hurt people to become rich. So it, it matters in a Buddhist economy what you do to become rich. Like, did you hurt other people? How did it happen? What did you do to gather your wealth? And then once you have this outer wealth that doesn't become the focus of your life, but that you also care about your inner wealth or your spiritual life, who you are, and how do you relate to everyone around you and to the world. So being rich isn't the problem. It's how you got rich, what you do with your richness, and how it impacts on your spiritual life. And you can certainly, you could become poor, but it wouldn't be by choice in this model. And this model was shared prosperity. We would hope that we could, we could gain the, human, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which is that everyone has adequate food and shelter and clean water, health care, education, and that they can function in their daily lives. Well, once that's achieved, you aren't really poor anymore. You, you may have less than other people in a material sense, but you have enough to have a comfortable, meaningful life. So in that sense, there really isn't any poverty. And what would be people who are true free marketeers? Well, of course, there are gradations of free marketeers. But one of the things that people talk about is that one of the great things about capitalism, and oftentimes they'll say the less regulated the better, is that incentive for innovation and knowing that through your own ingenuity, through networking with like-minded people, through investment of capital that perhaps you've saved or earned from, from other, other uh, ventures, that we will, have a, we will have a better society because people will in, innovate more and more. Uh, so the reason that we have cell phones is because somebody was sitting at uh, a workstation thinking, okay, we've gone this far. How can we go uh, this other great distance? And if we go this other great distance, I'm going to have a lot more money in my pocket. This is, this is what we are told is the incentive for much of the great technology and the, the, the ease of life, transportation, etc., that we, we all enjoy. Well, you know, you can have this, what you just said could also be described in a Buddhist economy. A Buddhist economy isn't against markets or capital. It's against how we actually create the economy so that we provide a comfortable life for everyone. But it doesn't do away with innovation. Innovation's critical. We need innovation now more than ever. We need to rebuild a modern infrastructure for clean energy. And that includes an enormous amount of innovation in technology and in re- rebuilding our infrastructure of transportation, energy, buildings, the way cities are planned. So Innovation is critical in our economy. It's just economic growth now wants to reflect moving to a green economy and wants to reflect providing basics and comforts for all people and not just luxuries or positional goods for the rich. So it's not that we're giving up innovation. We aren't even giving up capitalism. But what we're doing is we're structuring markets so that they perform better and they provide us the outcomes that our society wants. It's just, 
if you just leave markets to so-called free markets, which is really meaning markets run by big business and now by the fossil fuel industry, what you're focusing on is money for big business and especially for, for dirty energy, and it's actually causing enormous inequality and it's killing the planet. What is, to the best of your understanding, tell me about that part of human nature uh, that seeks to find happiness. Oh, great, because that's actually one of the big distinguishing characteristics of of the free marketeers and those who want a Buddhist-style economy or spiritual economy. So human nature in a competitive free market model is that, you know what, people are selfish and they're rational and all they're going to do is maximize their own incomes. And then economists went out and did a lot of studies and they came back and said, actually, you know what, people aren't selfish. People are highly altruistic. So what does that mean? Well, that gets you very quickly over to a Buddhist economy where people, in fact, are generous and altruistic and care about others and that their relationships are a very important part of their lives. So in Buddhist economics, we we start off with people being altruistic and generous, caring about others, being interconnected with others, and their happiness actually comes from helping others and being part of a community where everyone's thriving. And when the neurosurgeons go out and measure what are how what makes people happy, they in find in fact that people are happy when they're helping other people and, and interacting and connecting with other people. And the behavioral economists say, let's go out and see what happens when people become happy from buying things. And they say, what they find is, oh, people get happy from buying a new pair of shoes or a computer game or getting a new car. They're happy, but not for very long. They revert back to their former level of happiness and, and then become disgruntled again and want to go out and buy more things. But happiness where that's based upon consumerism is quite short-lived, whereas the happiness that's based upon helping others and being part of a family and community is, is long-lasting happiness. Why do you suppose, then, if this is the case, that so many industries say, in particular in the the end of the 19th century, into the 20th century, into the mid-20th century, you you had these, these industries that kept workers at the bottom, paid them poorly, fought unionization. Uh, and, well, the reason they fought unionization is because they didn't want to pay them more, obviously. How come we didn't have a lot of people going, hey, wait a minute here, you know something? I'm I'm actually much happier when my workers get more money. It, it, it seems like we didn't have a lot of that. I know that there are instances of it. As a matter of fact, you, you may not be aware of this, uh, Claire. Uh, just recently we had on uh, someone talking about the history of uh, the uh, the Shaker community. And there, uh, no, that's right. It was the Shaker community, and they um, had something to do with the Owens Corning Company. 
and the Owens Corn Corning Company was uh, was uh, governed by very strict rules so that everybody prospered. Unfortunately, they ended up selling out, and the company tanked, and so did the so did the um, workers. But my, my case is that still, by and large, you didn't have a lot of people expressing altruism when they were at the top of the food chain. Right. Well, you know, your example's great. And and we do have historians who can show us different things that happen and, and sort of the ebb and flow. But in Buddhism, one of the things that I'm fascinated by is that we all have our inner Buddha, which is altruistic, generous, really understands compassion and loving kindness, and is wise. And then we have our outer self, our sort of everyday personality, our mask, as it were, that allows us to get around in life and go around in life. And so one of the biggest challenges to Buddhists is how do I integrate my Buddha nature into how I get along and work in the real world? Because it's very, very important to work and get along and and have a life in the real world. So... Unfortunately for some people, this is where we end up observing enormous differences in personalities, where some people do become very selfish and aggressive and competitive, and that's, you know, maybe 10, 20% of the population. And on the other hand, we have the saints who are always kind and altruistic and helping others. And then that's another probably 10 to 20%. And then we have the rest of us who struggle daily with having a meaningful life where we balance work and family and community um, and where we try to not go overboard on consuming, we, where we care about our carbon footprint, but that we constantly struggle sort of how to live in a worthy, meaningful way. And that's where, in Buddhist economics, the role of business and government become very important. Because we as individuals are constrained by the products that business offers and also especially by the policies that the government provides. So we, we want to be safe. We want to have a social safety net to have some security. We want to have the right to, you know, have meaningful communities that are functioning. We need all of those things. And that's where the role of the government becomes very important. But we also want the right incentives to business to give us green products, to give us the ability to work fewer hours so we have more time with our families and communities. We, we need companies to sort of provide green products and balanced lives. So altogether, you can see how the individuals have to function within a system that lets them create the life that, that they want. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella, and joining me today is Dr. Claire Brown. She is the author of Buddhist Economics, An Enlightened Approach to the Dismal Science. And I want to correct myself real quick. When I was giving you that example of the Shakers, it wasn't Owens Corning. Uh, it was uh, Oneida, the uh, silverware company that, uh, that was created out of uh, uh, Shaker philosophy. And and they were apparently a wonderful, wonderful company that provided much to the community, much to the to the workers, until 
uh, they sold out to another group of people that did not honor those commitments. Uh, so uh, I'm going to ask you a wonky question, and because your your book is uh, so understandable, I mentioned this last week that people who are afraid of economics, thinking that they're going to have to do a lot of math <laughs> to get through the book. This is not the case with, with your book, uh, Claire. But tell us what the Gini coefficient scale is. Great. The Gini coefficient is how we measure inequality. And so the higher the number, actually the worse the inequality. So the Gini coefficient goes from zero when Everybody has exactly the same income, all the way up to one. And at one, one person has all the income and no one has anything else. So it goes from zero to one. And a lot of countries think that being around 0.3 is, is, not, is a pretty good income distribution. And so, so social democracies of Europe and Europe in general tends to be around more of 0.25, 0.3. The U.S. tends to be much more up around 0.5, and this is also true of, of other countries. Um, and then we can look at sort of the income distribution before government redistribution with taxes and, and social programs, and that that helps the distribution quite a bit. In the U.S., we go from like 0.55 down to much more like 0.4. So it helps enormously. And this is true of of any industrialized country. You can look at the income distribution before and after government policies to see to what extent are government policies helping to make everyone better off in a more equal way. So the Gini coefficient is just a quick number to talk about the distribution of income and how sort of the consumption of people. Okay. Thank you. Uh, One thing that uh, has always fascinated me, well, I shouldn't say always, but in the last couple of years, this, what I would consider the myth of austerity, that we need to be very austere. We need to be so careful with how we uh, distribute, how we spend our money. And it just seems that we are on this treadmill of austerity and we're not really seeing anything come of it that, that looks like an improvement in our society. Uh, where did this come from and, and why are people on this bandwagon? And I'll say one other thing. It's so fascinating that politicians today, uh, they, whenever we talk about, uh, say, the debt, they say, we don't want to saddle our grandchildren with this, this nine, $10 trillion debt. But they, they don't ever, the people who say that are not the same people who say, we don't want our grandchildren to, uh, to have to wear oxygen masks when they come into the city. That's right. That's a very good point. So one of the reasons economists... Um, Economists talk about austerity only in certain countries, especially it's happened in Greece and Spain and Portugal. And and some of the countries where the governments lose control over their ability to have set up their budgets because of being tied to the euro in Europe. And, And so it's a very different situation than we have in the U.S., where we're in charge of our own money supply. 
and we don't really have to worry about what's about the the budget the way they have to in Europe uh, for the lower income countries, Italy, Spain, especially Greece, Hungary. Um, so the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, whenever there's any problem in a budget, they just come in with the standard procedure that in fact has been shown to not work, which is austerity. And so we won't go into that for too long because it's really quite technical. But if you go and do read about it, you'll find that, in fact, austerity doesn't work. Austerity only actually reduces income even further without helping the economy get back to being healthy. So let's go back and say, well, why don't we, in this country, we care about sustainability? And so one of the reasons given, which I think is not correct, is they'll say, well, we don't have to worry about sustainability for two reasons. One is there's going to be a magic technological fix. Well, we've already shown that that's not going to happen fast enough. Some magic bullet will not come along fast enough. But we already have the technology we need if we would start using it for clean energy. We have the technology, and there are several roadmaps out there. Um, deep carbonization, the Jacobson roadmap. There are several roadmaps that I go over in my book to say, we could do it. We just have to start doing it now and not wait for some magic technology that will come along to take the carbon out of the air. Then the other reason some economists give is they say, well, look, future generations are just going to be a lot richer than we are. They're going to have even bigger um, GDPs or national outputs. So we don't need to worry because they're going to be better off than we are anyway. But that's not true. That's not true because we know quality of life isn't just national output or market goods and services. The quality of life is how, how we're able to live with nature and our environment in a meaningful way. And if we don't stop heating up the planet, life as we know it isn't actually going to be possible. So it's not an idea of how much consumption will there be in the future. It's actually how much life will there be in the future. What's interesting, too, about us as, as human beings is that we, we can settle or, or, or we can make trade-offs pretty easily, I think. For instance, you talk about quality of life. We're here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and if you're in a car and you're in that car for more than 20 minutes to get to your destination, chances are you're doing something wrong <laughs> or you're lost because it's not going to take you more than 20 minutes. And we have a, a, a wonderfully, mostly congestion-free. Our rush hour is nothing like rush hours around uh, in, in major metropolitan areas. But when I go to Chicago and Los Angeles and I see people just pretty much plan their life around spending an hour, two hours in traffic to get from here to there and back again. I, it, it occurs to me, no, they're, they're making a trade-off. They're, they're, they're not saying something's wrong here. They're saying this is the way life is. Do you see us going down that road where we're, we're just sort of content, as content as we can be, to be stuck in a, a, a situation that does not uh, have our best interest at heart. 
Right. So let's take California, where I live, and where gridlock and transportation cost and time and money are enormous. And people don't say it's okay. It's like they say, given what's happening right now, what's the very best I can do in terms of my commute time, in terms of trying to make it work better? But they don't say it's okay. It's because it's almost unbearable that the enormous traffic congestion and the long time spent commuting we know is definitely decreasing our quality of life, and we want to improve it. So in California, we're, we're spending a lot of time and money on, number one, trying to get rid of a carbon-based economy in transportation and in electricity, and we're also trying to figure out how to improve the transportation options, and we're spending a lot of money on public transit so that people can have more choices in figuring out how to get to work and home again. So it's not like we think it's okay. Only in the short run can we try and make those trade-offs. But in the longer run, we want to totally change the structure of the system so that it works better for us and for everybody. Is traffic where you are as bad as uh, what I know it to be in, um, say, San Jose or, or, of course, even worse, Los Angeles? I'll just tell you that in order to talk to you today, and I needed to be at campus, I could normally get to campus in 25 minutes. So went, or I could take BART, and, and it's still about the same. But today, because you wanted me to come during commute hours to get here, because like, you're right, I do. I plan my time. I left earlier, I took back roads, and I made it. But it wasn't fun. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Now you got me feeling bad. I had no <laughs> but, uh, idea. No, but it was worth it. Oh, no, <laughs> okay. but Fred, it was worth it to talk to you. This has okay. been a wonderful conversation. Okay. Okay, very good. Well, and we are unfortunately at the end of this conversation, but, but Claire, it has been great, and I want to thank you for your appearance today and last week as well. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and Dr. Claire Brown has been my guest. She is the author of Buddhist Economics, An Enlightened Approach to the Dismal Science. Please join us again next week right here on WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.